so tonight I'd like to begin um, by including the two figures you see on the altar here, the Buddha and Prajnaparamita, who we may also think of as a goddess. Some of us do. Um, and I'd like to begin with, they've been with us all week, and, and I'd, so I'd like to begin in their honor by reading the very short sutra on the meeting of the Buddha and the goddess. Did you know they had met? <laughs> they did. <coughs> this is a, a short sutra written by a Buddhist practitioner and author, dear friend who is no longer here but was a wonderful being, Rick Fields. He wrote this, listen up, thus I have made up. <laughs> <laughs> Once, the Buddha was walking along the forest path in the oak grove at Ojai, (laughs) (laughs) walking without arriving anywhere, or having any thought of arriving or not arriving. And lotuses shining with the morning dew miraculously appeared under every step, soft as silk beneath the toes of the Buddha. When suddenly, out of the turquoise sky, dancing in front of his half-shut inward-looking eyes, shimmering like a rainbow or a spider's web, transparent as the dew on a lotus flower, the goddess appeared, quivering, like a hummingbird in the air before him. She, for she surely was a she, as the Buddha could clearly see, with his eye of discriminating awareness. (laughs) She was mostly red in color, though when the light shifted, she flashed like a rainbow. She was naked, except for the usual flower ornaments that goddesses wear. Her long blue hair was deep blue, her two eyes fathomless pits of space, and her third eye a bloodshot ring of fire. The Buddha folded his hands together and greeted the goddess thus, O goddess, why are you blocking my path? (laughs) Before I saw you, I was happily going nowhere. Now I'm not sure where to go. You can go around me, said the goddess, twirling on her heels like a bird darting away, but just a little way away. Or you can come after me. This is my forest, too. You can't pretend I'm not here. (laughs) With that, the Buddha sat, supple as a snake, solid as a rock, beneath a bow tree that sprang full leave to shade him. Perhaps we should have a chat, he said. After years of arduous practice at the time of the morning star, I penetrated reality, and now, not so fast, Buddha, I am reality. (laughs) (laughs) The earth stood still, the oceans paused, the wind listened, a thousand arhats, bodhisattvas, and dakinis magically appeared to hear what would happen in this conversation. (laughs) 
I know I take my life in my hands, said the Buddha, but I am known as the fearless one, so here goes. And he and the goddess, without further words, exchanged glances, light rays like sunbeams, shot forth so bright that even Sariputra, the all-seeing one, had to turn away. And then they exchanged mind, and there was a great silence as vast as the universe that contains everything. And then they exchanged bodies and clothes, and the Buddha arose as the goddess, and the goddess arose as the Buddha, and so on back and forth for a hundred thousand kalpas. If you meet the Buddha, you meet the goddess. If you meet the goddess, you meet the Buddha. Not only that, this. The Buddha is the goddess. The goddess is the Buddha. And not only that, this. The Buddha is emptiness. The goddess is bliss. And that is what and what not you are. It's true. So here comes the mantra of the goddess and the Buddha, the unsurpassed, non-dual mantra. Just to say this mantra, just to hear this mantra once, just to hear one word of this mantra once, (laughs) makes everything the way it truly is. Okay. That may be one of the more important sutras of our times. And actually, I was at this retreat when Rick Fields wrote this this, um, sutra. We were on a creativity retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh at at the Ojai Center outside of Santa Barbara. And um, the gauntlet was thrown down. (laughs) I don't know that Thich Nhat Hanh knew quite what to make of it all, but... He had gathered together a, a whole bunch of artists from all across America to create the new American Buddhism. He wanted uniforms and temples and, you know, kind of Buddhist-looking things to happen. Instead, he got this. <laughs> and other things as well. But these, these archetypes of the Buddha and the goddess they are alive in some way, aren't they? Are they not? Mm-hmm. Are they real? Are they not real? They live in an in-between world. They are archetypal, and we resonate with them. For some people, the Buddha is a source of great inspiration, and um, it, it becomes sort of a real presence and the goddess as well, since she has reemerged in more recent years. She has become a very powerful force, even in, even in popular culture, I think. So it, it's not like they, they, um, we, we don't see them here in this world. You know, we can't call them on the phone or make a, a date for lunch, you know, not like that. You can't send the Buddha emails and get a reply. And yet they seem like very powerful forces in our lives. So what I want to talk about tonight is this 
world that is in between, where such images, such archetypes live. I want to talk about the the realm of what is called the Sambhogakaya world. Don't be um, frightened by the big Buddhist word. I'm going to try to describe it to you in a way that it will feel very knowable. It's actually the realm of imagination, of dreams, of archetypes. And this is what I want to talk about tonight, this world. In order to understand its significance, let me also describe the two other realms which are described in the Tibetan Buddhist um, teaching. And they are altogether called the three bodies or the three realms of being, the three bodies of existence. And they are seen to be the complete description of all the bodies that a human being inhabits in this life. The three bodies or kayas of existence are one, the dharmakaya. The dharmakaya is described as the formless realm. It is the realm that we enter every night when we sleep deeply, when we are deeply asleep without dreams. We enter this realm. It is also the realm of emptiness or the void. It is the realm of pure awareness. Awareness that exists without being dependent on an object. It is the realm which Rumi called the radiant one inside of me. He said, the radiant one inside of me has never spoken a word. It is that pure, silent awareness that accompanies us every step of the way. The Nirmanakaya is this world, the world that we generally think of as the real world, the world that we can see and hear and taste and touch, the world that our bodies exist in, the world of information and contact with uh, what we call reality, the sensory world, the material world. In between these two, the formless realm and this realm of material existence, is the Sambhogakaya, the realm of imagination, the realm of dreams, the realm of archetypes, Christ, Buddha, devil, goddess, these universal symbols of human experience. It is the world in between the world of form and the formless realm. It is sometimes called, in in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, it's called the Sambhogakaya. In um, more psychological systems, like the Jungian system, it's called the liminal state or the threshold consciousness. Again, just describing this quality of this world that is in between. So not to be dismayed by the 
names of these things, but just to begin to recognize them in our experience, because actually, if you look at your experience, you can see that you visit each of these realms every day, every night when you go to sleep. We could say that the creative person, as well as the person who meditates or takes up some spiritual search, visits this in-between realm perhaps more regularly and consciously than other people, and even at times creates a lifestyle out of inhabiting this world more fully, bringing this world into existence. We could say it is the world of the person who goes to the monastery, the person who has renounced traditional values and forms of worldly life to inhabit a more internal world with alternative values. It is the world of the creative person who chooses to spend hours of time during the day, just as we are on this retreat, inhabiting the world of imagination, of imagery, of mystery, of magic. It is the world where the Buddha can become the goddess, the goddess can become the Buddha. They can play in that way. Have you had dreams since you've been here? I've had dreams. Last night I dreamt that I was in on a river in Japan with the husband of a friend of mine. <laughs> now, what this was about, you know, who can say? <laughs> but it was, it was, it was, that's what, where I was. And who is the, the, the I that I'm speaking about when I say I was there? It's a very magical, mysterious world where our sense of self becomes quite amorphous. Now, in this tradition of Buddhism that we practice here at Spirit Rock, which is called the Theravadan tradition, and which refers back to the earliest writings of the Buddha, you will not hear any reference to this realm. It is not written about, it's not spoken about. Any time in, in Vipassana practice, if you bump into imagery or... It is, it is you, the instruction primarily is, you know, just let it go. It is just another, it's like a thought. Just let it go. So that is just the way it is. No judgment. But I had noticed over the years that... Um, in my own process, as well as in the process of many artists that I know, that there seemed to be a disconnect between this practice and that other world, where myself and people I knew were spending huge amounts of time in the imaginal realm. And it's taken me, it's been quite a journey for me to see how they do connect, and that there is, they're not... um, so separate, but that there is a way in which these worlds can and do meet for the benefit, I think, of both. The imaginative world has seemed very compelling to me at times, as well as very valuable. Compelling in that it's just so interesting and there's so much to be explored and there's so much 
of the magic and the mystery of existence in it, also powerful in its effect on my process of helping me to really feel in myself the transparency and fluidity of that which I call I or me. The emptiness of self seems much more um, available in some ways in that world. An example, um, I might think of myself, and I do generally, sort of in Buddhist terms. You know, I'm a Buddhist teacher. I teach at a Buddhist center. So I guess I'm a Buddhist, you know. I'm, I sort of think of myself in those terms. But then I've had times where I've wanted to paint Christ, and I've painted Christ, and I've gotten very touched and moved and completely... Um, very interested in the experience of painting Christ. But does that make me a Christian? Not really. I don't feel I'm a Christian, but yet there's this direct somehow connection with the figure of Christ in my painting that I never would have known about if I hadn't painted. It does seem to mean that the way I think of myself in terms of an image of myself or as a role is a very narrow frame on this very big and mysterious experience of life. Our self-image definitely gets stretched as we create through our painting, through our dreams, In our dreams, our usual ways of thinking about who we are, our gender, our age, our race, our class, our roles as mother or teacher or child, they all disappear. There's a poet, um, I don't, I probably won't say this name right, Cisla Milos. Does anybody know him? Yes, that's a better pronunciation. (laughs) But I cannot say. My tongue does not do that. Um, But he's quoted in this wonderful book of Jane Hirschfield, which I highly recommend. It's called Nine Gates, Entering the Mind of Poetry. It's a very beautiful book, and she writes quite a bit about this, what she calls threshold consciousness, this in-between place that the artist or the creator inhabits. He, this poet, um, writes, the purpose of poetry is to remind us how difficult it is to remain just one person. For our house is open, there are no keys in the doors, and invisible guests come in and out at will. Did you have any invisible guests come into your painting today? Perhaps. (laughs) It reminds me very much of the Rumi poem that begins, This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. In whatever way we open, we are opening ourselves to this fluidity of boundary, this permeable sense of self. To the ego self, which is the self that 
wants to know who it is, where it's going, what it's going to get, what it likes, what it doesn't like, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. This is a little bit disturbing, isn't it? In this realm, this threshold realm, we lose our usual reference points, the reference points that the ego counts on to keep its sense of self going. Roger Houston was walking in the Sahara Desert. He said, after a few hours of walking, it was obvious I was going nowhere. Where was I to go in a land that dwarfed me and provided no landmarks? When I turned back after a while to see how far I had come, the wind had already brushed my footprints away. I realized in the desert how our sense of self is so intricately bound up in its relation with something or someone other, even if that other is no more than a sand dune. Without even a sand dune for reference point, Roger seemed to slip away for a while, leaving little but the simplest sensation of being alive, not as this identity or that, but simply as aliveness itself. I was playing with this a little bit this afternoon, and I realized that we could substitute some words here, so let me reread it. I realized in the painting how our sense of self is so intricately bound up in its relation with something or someone other, even if that other is no more than a brushstroke. Without even a brushstroke for reference, Roger seemed to slip away for a while, leaving little but the simple sensation of being alive, not as this identity or that, but simply as aliveness itself. And I'm sure many of you have experienced that in the painting. After a while, you don't need the reference points, don't you? Have you noticed that? It's not a problem when they disappear. It's only a problem when you stand back and think, what does it mean? Who am I now? Pema Chodron talks a lot in uh, her writing about practice as a loss of these reference points. She says, in the middle way, there are no reference points. Instead, that meditation itself is an invitation to experience an open state of mind that can relax with paradox and ambiguity. And so meditation encourages this letting go into not knowing and it leads to the wisdom of emptiness. Part of that experience is really seeing that there is no one directing or controlling our experience. What we call this self, this me, is actually a process of endless unfolding experience happening entirely on its own. We can struggle with it, we can try to improve it or control it, or we can learn to allow the unfolding and trust the intelligence at work. 
Out of this emptying, we begin to feel less separate, more connected to life. And so we feel also a sense of compassion arising. Nisargadatta tells us, he says, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. And between the two, my life flows. And this is what we are practicing here on this retreat, the letting go, which occurs in sitting and walking, as well as the full engagement with all of life, which the painting process asks of us. And in between is the practice of Qigong, which tells us how to embody the letting go in movement harmonizing ourselves with the movement, not of the mind, but of the chi, the life energy. We may have come on this retreat thinking certain things about who we think we are. We may, this is not uncommon, we come on retreat thinking, well, you know, I'm a person who really loves, I'm very loving, I have love and compassion for all beings. And then we are surprised to find ourselves consumed by rage when somebody in the dorm slams the door. (laughs) We may think I'm a person who really needs to talk to others and make contact with others. And so they are surprised to discover a love of being in silence. We may think, well, I'm a person who's fairly easygoing. And then you're surprised to feel so much impatience and judgment arising. Or you may feel, I'm a person who really needs to express the beauty I feel inside and is shocked when disturbing images want to come into your painting. I remember when I started this practice, I could not believe that I could be so happy doing nothing for long periods of time. It just could not, it made no sense to my mind, which had this image of, what I thought I knew I needed to be happy. So retreat practice has this way of expanding, you could say, our concept of ourself. Our self-concept tells us one thing about ourselves, and reality, how it actually is, tells us another. So we often begin to sense the possibility of inhabiting a larger and more complex version of ourselves, one that is paradoxical, ambiguous, multi-layered. We could say that this happened to the Buddha when he left his palace, he left his defined life behind him, and he went out into the wilderness into this in-between world where he had no defined role, no defined identity. He went very thoroughly into the wilderness, into the unknown, and determined to find his own way. And this required him letting go of everything, only knowing that he was on a quest in pursuit of something that was calling him. 
So in this Sambhogakaya, in this in-between world, we are alone in a new way. We cannot rely on our usual roles and relationships to tell us who we are, how we're doing. We are explorers. The man who had been a uh, government official, his name was during the Tang dynasty in China, his name was Wang Wei, eventually gave up his, his position and he moved out to the country. And he says, in a former life I was a poet and my older body than that used to belong to a painter. My name and my public face may speak of who I once was, but of this my heart knows nothing. There's a, I was speaking with a woman um, a few weeks ago who left a whole life behind on the East Coast. She had a very established role as a teacher and a community of people and the whole sangha and all that. She left it all behind her and moved to Los Angeles where she feels very much like a person in exile in a way. But she has a teacher there who says this is good. This is a good kind of experience to be completely alone and anonymous. To go into exile now and then is a a very good teaching. Lama Paulden, who some of you know she teaches here, writes about doing her uh, three-year retreat in the Tibetan tradition. Three years on retreat. Can you imagine? (laughs) She says, when I originally went into the retreat, I had the idea that it would somehow be a solution to all my problems. (laughs) That at last I would receive the most profound instructions be able to practice them without distraction, and if not actually attain awakening, awakening, at least make some pretty healthy progress along the path. Needless to say, my expectations, both conscious and unconscious, were not fulfilled, at least not in the way I expected. Oh yes, the profound instructions were given, and it was possible to practice them. But there was one big catch, and that was I, me, mine. She said, I gained a much better understanding of how deeply our emotional and ego-based patterns are embedded in us. I also saw clearly that the methods of Buddhist practice will, without doubt, clear them away. It only requires us to work... with diligence and enthusiasm. In a way, so there is this paradox of going into these places, this in-between world. It is a place where we are both alone, and yet it seems to evoke in us a greater sense of connection It brings us paradoxically into greater intimacy with all of life. Gary Snyder, the poet, writes, Awareness of emptiness 
brings forth the heart of compassion. There's another important element um, about spending time in the Sambhogakaya, which I want to bring into this talk. Um, I've never talked about this before, so this is, this is a very much a talk in progress because this is sort of new territory for me. But um, I want to bring in something which um, Brian Swim, the cosmologist, something he, something he, he talks about. <clears throat> he says, each species has its own habitat, that place where the species can flower. If a species cannot find its proper habitat, its true powers of life cannot be evoked. A species denied its habitat perishes. We see it all around us. What is the true habitat of the human? Anybody care to speculate? What is the true habitat of the human being? Spirit rock. <laughs> 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 Anybody? Can we tell you what it's not? Huh? Can we tell you what it's not? Okay. Sure. It's not tall buildings. It's not tall buildings. I think it's water. Water. Yes. We, we did come from the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Anyone else? Nurturing and peaceful? In the heart? Well, we can be very closely tuned to the cycles of nature and feel. Close to nature? Okay. Up mud. <laughs> you know, there's a little, I mean, I could see the potential of everything you're saying. What his answer is, is it's a little surprising. He says, adventurous play. A human denied this habitat of adventure and play is denied the opportunity to become truly human. Isn't that amazing? But when you think about it, when are you at your best? (laughs) When are human beings at their best? When they're all uptight and serious and working hard? (laughs) I don't think so. When they're worried and trying to save for the future? I don't think so. When they're thinking a lot and poking little keys on a computer? (laughs) I don't think so. When are you at your best? On vacation, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Mr. Fuller said, we're humans are made for singing and dancing. Oh, that's lovely. Buckminster Fuller said, humans are made for singing and dancing. Very close. Maybe we are. Mm-hmm. Where did we go wrong? <laughs> yeah. 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 
Okay. So there we are. Well, one place I've been in the world where this does seem to be a living reality is Bali. If any of you have been there, you know what I'm speaking about. They really do play there. And it's important. If, if there's something that needs to be celebrated, all the shops close. Everybody is at, on, in the business of preparing whatever ornaments or flowers or costumes or masks or music. It's all happening almost every day there. And everybody in Bali has a creative activity. It's just nobody doesn't have one. You're either making masks or painting or writing or performing. It's just part of life. And it, it's, it, they seem pretty happy. They, they really do. So the spirit of play... And that, of course, speaks to the fact that in this realm of the imagination, the rational mind is not in charge. The rational mind is rather in the service of the heart, of the energetic experience of the movement of life. The task is to follow your energy. Follow your hands, your heart, your senses, your intuition. Let it flower. Learning to trust in our innate, spontaneous ability to play, to improvise, to create out of nothing. Walt Whitman was a wonderful inhabitor of this in-between world, where he both really dropped out in a very profound way, but spoke so deeply and compassionately for and about many beings and spoke so heartfully about the joy he found in his life. He said, I am grateful for what I am and have. My thanksgiving is perpetual. It is surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh when I think of my vague, indefinite riches. No run on my bank can drain it, for my wealth is not possessions, but enjoyment of being. So Jane Hirschfield writes about this place of the imagination. Like the act of writing itself, she says, it is about stepping past what we already think we know and into an entirely new relationship with the many possibilities of being, with the ultimately singular and limitless mystery of being. Above all, it is about freedom, and the affection for all existence that only genuine freedom brings. So it is a delicious invitation, is it not? To enjoy this in-between world 
and to see it very much not as something away from our practice, but actually as a, a piece of what we are learning in practice, to inhabit a world that is less defined, more paradoxical, more free, more playful, more ambiguous, more nonsensical. Discovering, perhaps, the true habitat of the human being. So let's sit together for just a moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on September 24, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.